Welcome. We've been waiting for you, guests and visitors and longtime members. Welcome. Welcome home. We've been waiting for you. Some of you will probably remember it was two years ago, uh, I think it was the first Sunday that you were here, Jen, when Jen walked into the sanctuary, or sometime during that week, one of our longtime members, one of the elders in this community, reached up to Jen and held Jen's face. It was actually Mary Jerf right here in the front row who grabbed her and said, grabbed her and just said, we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. And that captures something, not only about your spirit, Mary, but about the spirit of this church and the spirit that lives here. It captures something about the kind of hospitality and the welcome that we want to embody in this place. You see it in our welcome teams as they greet you, as they enter, as you enter the building and the sanctuary, and they're outside welcoming people, whether it's 85 degrees or 5 degrees below zero, as far as I can tell, these welcome team members are. We have it in our Pathway to Membership class, which is designed to welcome and orient you as you come into this faith community and in our circles, whether they're racial justice circles or spiritual deepening circles or circles for newcomers, we focus on creating a space to welcome the whole person, gifts and wounds. Or said another way, we create a space where you can bring it. Bring your whole self to this faith. Man, woman, gender, queer, bisexual, gay, straight, bring it. Mental illness, addiction, physical illness, grief, gratitude, unbounded joy, bring it. Multiracial, multicultural, multilingual, bring it. Republican, Democrat, Green Party, no party, bring it. God lover, atheist, humanist, Unitarian Universalist, bring it. Bring your gifts and your wounds, because here we see each other as more than wealth, health, stability, intelligence, and soul strength. We've been waiting for you. And in this sermon series that we're launching at this beginning of this new church year, we're exploring hospitality, not just the surface of hospitality, like, hey, welcome, out of here, but the deeper, but the deeper, harder, rougher edges of hospitality, the complexity of hospitality, the religious dimensions of hospitality. And underlying this idea of we've been waiting for you, underlying that is our universalist theology. Theology is just a fancy word that means thinking, studying, and talking about God or love or the spirit of life, that thing that we are ultimately loyal to. Theology is talking and reflecting about that life, love, God, and then naming how that shapes us and our worldview. Here we do theology grounded in our experience, in tradition, and grounded in this world. And here are those core universalist theological underpinnings behind we've been waiting for you. And these are articulated by a colleague of mine. Here they are. Here's the first one. Whatever we may or may not believe about God, we can say that God is love. And even if we don't believe in God, we can believe in an ethic of love, the power of love, love to grab a hold of us and transform us. It makes a profound claim on our lives. That's the first one. God is love, or we recognize the power of love central to our lives. 
The second claim we make as Unitarian Universalists is each of us, each of us holds a piece of truth. Not the whole truth, but a piece of truth. The second, that's the second claim. The third claim is each person is sacred and worthy of dignity. That's the third. And the last one is we are in this together. We are one body, one human family on one planet. There is not a pile of people who are saved and a pile of people who are damned. It is one body, one family, one planet. We are in this together inexplicably connected to one another. That is what is behind this idea of we've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you because you contain a piece of holy truth that we need to hear. We've been waiting for you because your light helps brighten the path we walk together. We've been waiting for you because you can teach us yet another way that love is alive in the world. To all of you here for the first time and new to this church, we have been waiting for you. Oh, yes, we have. Oh, yes, we have. But hold on now. Hold on now, church. Come with me into this little place of confusion I landed in. When I sat with this phrase, we've been waiting for you, because there was this moment where all of a sudden it wasn't clear who is the we and who is the you. And the way I've been using it up until this point, we is us. It's the body of the church as we welcome you, guests and visitors and new members. But what if the we is not us? And what if the you is someone else? Let me tell you how I got to that place and that confusion and swirly place. A week and a half ago, I was at our son's curriculum night at his school. I listened to the kindergarten teachers talk about class and the curriculum and what they're doing. I watched the PowerPoint and I, my phone was disabled, so I couldn't text anybody or do anything to distract myself. But I took in the information and, and made some notes and actually it was good. And I thought, all right, I'm here. I'm here. I'm watching this. I'm, pre- I'm present. Mostly I was. <laughs> and at the end of this presentation, there was this, there was this Q&A. There was a chance for these parents to ask questions. And it was at that point in time, we'd gotten there a little bit late, and so I finally had a chance to look around the room as people were asking questions. And I could see that it was mostly a room full of people who racially, they looked like they were white people. Not exclusively, but pretty close. So during the question and A, I started thinking, as I looked around the room, I started thinking about Ferguson, Missouri. I started thinking about race and racism and whiteness. And I was thinking about these things in that space all of a sudden because just a few days earlier Tucker our son had seen the cover of Time magazine this end of August issue maybe you've seen it it's the one with a young man on his knees like this and there's lights and tear gas and police you can see him in the distance and that hands up don't shoot pose my son had just seen that on the front of Time magazine And he flipped open the magazine to the story, and he saw a picture of this police officer holding a a tear gas gun and the canister of tear gas. And he said, what's this? What's this picture on the front in in the article? What is this? He's five. I did my best. I said, it's complicated. It's complicated. So we live in a country where there's a story, a story that white-skinned people made up and have been telling 
that says black and brown-skinned people are dangerous, are violent, are less human than other people. It's not true, that story, but it's a story we tell. I explained that a young man, Michael Brown, had been shot and killed, most likely, most likely because of the color of his skin. And my son paused, he looked at me, and he said, is my friend Jay, a friend with dark skin, is he going to be shot? I wanted to say no, no, of course not. I did say, no, I think, I think he's okay, I think he'll be okay. But I don't know that. I don't know that for sure. I couldn't tell him honestly, no, your friend Jay is going to be just fine. I don't know how he'll turn out, his friend, how he moves through this world. So that conversation and that moment, that raw moment for me when I wanted to grab my son and say, of course, of course he's going to be fine. Like, he's a great kid. Of course he's going to be fine. That moment is in the back of my mind at this end of the kindergarten presentation with these teachers. And then I started thinking about this hashtag I'd seen on Twitter, this Ferguson syllabus hashtag, which was content that teachers were gathering. They were sharing it with one another and talking to their colleagues and pulling this content together to use in their classrooms to talk about Ferguson as they returned to school as the kids came back to school. And I thought about how unprepared I was to answer that question with our son. And so I wanted to ask these kindergarten teachers, what, what are you saying in your classrooms in light of what has happened in Ferguson? What are you saying? And then the presenter asked, are there any final questions? And I almost put my hand up thinking maybe the right question is this. Maybe the right question is just, what are you teaching about race and racism and whiteness in the classroom? but I didn't put my hand up. I was silent. I'm not proud of my silence, but I was silent, and the meeting ended. Why had I been silent? Because whiteness, because the racial narrative, it doesn't want to be seen or questioned. And it was in that space, holding the tender question of my five-year-old son, holding the hashtag Ferguson syllabus, where the phrase, we've been waiting for you, took on an entirely different meaning for me. Faster than I could imagine in that space, a community of color with white racial justice activists as well, they gathered around me in my mind saying, we've been waiting for you to show up to ask those questions, to act, to live your universalist faith. We've been waiting for you. And in that space, I began to imagine, what if we've been waiting for you is really about this faith community, this historically white faith community that aspires to be a multiracial, multicultural, racially just church? What if we've been waiting for you is about us collectively. 
I know many of you have dedicated your lives to this work and are deeply involved and committed to racial justice. But what if the you and we've been waiting for you is about us as First Universalists, as an institution, really starting to move in the direction of racial justice? And this phrase, we've been waiting for you, doesn't have to be about race, racism, and whiteness, though that's where I'm going with it this morning. The phrase can be used in all parts of our lives. Who's the we and who's the you? And how does an open heart and deep listening open that question even further? We've been waiting for you. In my head, I imagine this community of color and activists saying, we've been waiting for you us collectively, to understand the history of the creation of race, how racism and whiteness are woven into the foundation and fabric of this country. We've been waiting for you to understand the history of slavery, the genocide of native peoples, the beautiful European cultures that have been exchanged, lost for whiteness. We've been waiting for you to understand the century of lynching and Jim Crow laws which denied blacks the right to vote and kept segregation alive. We've been waiting for you to understand the new Jim Crow. We've been waiting for you to understand this history so you have a context of what's happened and happening in our country and in Ferguson. Here's a piece of that context. As columnist Clarence Lang writes, data collected by the state of Missouri since 2000 shows that African Americans have consistently been targets of racial profiling by law enforcement officers. The National Association for the Advancement of Colored People currently has a complaint against police in St. Louis County where Ferguson is located for racial profiling. And the situation in Ferguson represents the bitter harvest of the war on drugs that started in, 19, in the 1980s. The war on drugs has produced racialized mass incarceration, new forms of black criminalization that cast people of color, particularly youth, as enemy combatants to be contained, controlled, and crushed. That's the backdrop for the tragic killing of Michael Brown. We've been waiting for you to pay attention to the racial narrative in the language that gets used in the mainstream media when events like Ferguson come up. Words like riot and looting and thugs Friends, the vast majority of people in Ferguson, Missouri, were, as one blogger put it, protesting and revolting against the police who have terrorized them for years. These weren't thugs. These were United States citizens essentially saying, end the war on us. This sort of targeted terror exists in the Twin Cities as well. Just one example is the footage of Chris Tolley being tasered in a St. Paul Skyway. The video has just recently become public. We've been waiting for you to understand, these voices say. We've been waiting for you to understand that there are two different laws and enforcement of those laws depending on the color of your skin. As one columnist wrote, compare what happened in Ferguson, Missouri to what happened last spring in Bunkerville, Nevada. Remember, this was, this was this rancher, Cliven Bundy, in Bunker Mill, Nevada, who refused to pay the grazing fees to the Bureau, United States Bureau of Land Management. So there was this really big confrontation. These anti-government forces and sort of militia groups and other people showed up at his compound to protect him and his cattle and refused to let the Bureau of Land Management agents uh, in to 
take his herd of cattle. This was in the media quite a bit. You may, may remember some of the images. This writer goes on to say, reflecting on this, and when I read this too, I was like, oh my gosh, I hadn't even seen this in this particular light. I was completely stunned to see those officers surrounded, this is in Bunkerville, Nevada, surrounded by screaming people with assault rifles, a police dog getting kicked, and open defiance of verbal commands. But when I saw that those officers had sniper rifles pointed at them, I could not believe my eyes. Snipers on live TV, this columnist says, let me repeat that. On the Bundy Ranch, armed protesters were violently obstructing law enforcement from performing their duties. Sniper rifles were pointed at those law enforcement officers. Then those snipers openly gloated about how they had the agents in their sights the entire time. And what was the police response? Nobody was arrested, no tear gas deployed, no tanks were called in, no rubber bullets fired, nothing. Nobody called the armed protesters at the Bundy Ranch thugs. This column, this ends with say, just imagine if there had been 150 black folks walking around Ferguson with assault rifles, some of them taking sniper positions on the top of buildings with their rifles pointed at police officers. You can't imagine it. You can't imagine it. And the voices, again, we've been waiting for you to value black and brown bodies as much as white bodies. We've been waiting for you to understand what it feels like to lose a child to racism, to fear that you'll lose a child to racism. Jonathan Capehart of the Washington Post writes, I remember the lessons my mother taught me growing up, how I shouldn't run in public lest I arouse undue suspicion. He's an African-American writer. How I most definitely should not run with anything in my hands lest anyone think I stole something. The lessons included not talking back to the police lest you give them a reason to take you to jail or worse. When you're black and especially male in the United States, he says, you have to go those seemingly extra lengths have to go overboard on the off chance that they might save your life. My wife and I have had no such conversations like that with our son. These voices again. We've been waiting for you to understand the terrorism that has existed in this country long before September 11th, long before Pearl Harbor, long before the bombing in Oklahoma City. In 1947, W.E.B. Du Bois and others brought charges to the United Nations against the United States of America for human rights violations against African Americans. Du Bois commented, it is not Russia that threatens the United States as so much as Mississippi. Internal injustice done to one's brothers is far more dangerous than the aggression of strangers from abroad. In his book, At the Hands of Persons Unknown, Philip Dre reminds us that from 1882 until 1952, not a single year passed without a recorded lynching somewhere in the United States, most often in the Deep South and Mississippi Delta regions. This violent justice meted out at the hands of persons unknown held African-American communities in terror. And the voices again. We've been waiting for you to feel our pain. We've been waiting for you to take seriously the humanity of people of color. 
We've been waiting for you to speak up, to start calling out whiteness. We've been waiting for you. This question got me all turned around. Who is the we and who is the you? And what is our religious response to the suffering that is brought about by racism? What is our religious response when we start to see clearly the racist structures and systems around us? How do we stay accountable to that love at the center of our faith? As a white person of faith, I'm sure of one thing. Racism distorts my relationship to the human family. Racism infects and sickens the health of our collective body. Racism and my faith, the belief that each person is sacred and worthy of dignity, is worthy of a fullness of life. Those two things cannot stand side by side. I hear the voices again. We've been waiting for you. Not for us to be saviors or heroes, not for us to charge in there and lead some cause, but for us to open our hearts, to make room there, to make room at the table, room to listen, room to grieve, room to share, room to act, to always make room for one more. Room so that compassion and equity, the desire for equity can grow deep roots. Room so that we can partner and speak up and stand with. Room so that living community, joyful community, grounded in justice can bloom and reveal our shared richness. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. We've been waiting for you. Amen.